2: Blog Talk Radio.
0: Greetings from inside. Eggertown Pizza here on Eggertown in Montes Vineyard, Massachusetts. It's Tuesday. It's time for the best political radio show you've never heard of. Signed for Backroom Politics. We've got a special best of show for you today. We're going to be replaying a couple of timely programs dealing with Gaza and we're also going to have uh, Unicef Sarah Crow on in the second half hour. And then for our Third and fourth half hours, we've got really great interviews, one with former Secretary of Transportation, Ray LaHood, and then, of course, our exclusive with the Dean of the House of Representatives. The Dean of Congress is Congressman John Dingell, Democrat of Michigan.
3: Have a great week, America.
0: We'll see you live from Shelley's next week, live, 4 o'clock, as Bob would usually say, the place to be. Join us next week as we have the latest in political discussions from our roundtable at Chili's Back Room, thirteen thirty-one F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington D.C. Here's our best of. Enjoy your week, America.
2: Blog Talk Radio.
3: Today on Backroom Politics, crisis in Gaza as continued Israeli offensive into Gaza City and the surrounding areas escalate into. More casualties, more violence. Secretary of State Kerry decides to make a drastic policy change. Did he even talk to POTUS about this one? We're going to be talking to Amri Cernan from the Israel Project. Also, midterm elections. We're going to be talking Senate side this time with our good friend and special guest, John Freshman. This and tell me a story this week on Backroom Politics.
1: Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell.
3: And good afternoon out there in radio Land. It's Tuesday. That means it's time for the best political radio show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, to my left, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing the 2nd Congressional District of Washington State. He is the Honorable Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman Hello. Al. And to my 11 o'clock, he is the former Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation and former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hello, Justin. And to my 12 o'clock, directly across the table, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who served at last count under four presidents. He is a longtime Senate insider, longtime Senate staffer, and a very distinguished, handsome, and factual fellow. From the Simpson Center, he is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And to my 1 o'clock, she is the former House Counsel for the Homeland Security Committee under Benny Thompson, former Obama appointee as general counsel to the Maritime Administration. She's the Honorable Denise Krett. Hello, Denise.
0: Hello, Justin.
3: And to my 2 o'clock, he is the former lobbyist for 20th Century Fox former executive director of the Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland. He is Washington insider Carl Tuvin. Hello, Carl.
4: Hello, Justin.
3: And to my right, ironically, he is longtime Democratic political operative and just general all-around attorney. Good guy. He is Dan Littner, Esquire. Hello, Daniel.
0: Hey, Justin. Glad to be here.
3: Uh, We've got a lot to talk about, big show. Joining us today is our special guest and our good friend, long-lost friend, John Freshman. We're going to be talking midterm elections with John here in a second. But first, we want to get to uh, breaking news coming out of the Middle East. Uh, For those who have not heard, there is a continued offensive uh, between the Israeli defense forces and uh, the Hamas rebellion inside the uh, Gaza Strip. It has continued to become a war of words. It is a war of wills. However, it has gotten escalated because of Secretary Kerry's call today to all of a sudden say that the Americans should help a unilateral agreement with Hamas, basically saying we should negotiate with Hamas, which last time I checked was a terrorist organization. Joining us right now from the Israel Project is Amri Cernan,
5: who is uh, joining us right now on the phone. Amri, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you for having me.
3: Thank you for having us. Amri, hey, real quickly, first, tell us a little bit about the Israel Project and exactly what you guys are doing and how you guys are promoting the interests of not only Israel and the Jewish state, but Israelis globally.
5: So we actually don't. We, we're a... Uh... Pub- recognizable in D.C., a public affairs firm basically. You know, there are lobbies that work on the Hill. We're not that. There are think tanks that produce papers. We're not that. And then there are folks who work with journalists on issues that are uh, of concern to them. Uh, we work not so much on behalf of the Israelis. We're a D.C.-based organization. We work on behalf of uh, we're a recognizable kind of pro-American exceptionalism type firm that believes that the us israel relationship is integral to promoting American interests, things like power projection in the Eastern Mediterranean, let alone, you know, the softer kind of things like economic integration, global integration, innovation, technology, and so on. So really, I think probably the best way to understand what we do is we help explain what's going on in the Middle East to journalists with an eye towards uh, strengthening the U.S.-Israel relationship.
6: Well,
3: perfect. Great opportunity to have you on the air with us. Uh, the, The big question today, obviously, Omri, is the latest statements coming out of Secretary Kerry. Uh, when when Secretary Kerry makes the announcement that he believes that the Israelis and thus also the American government should be talking to Hamas about possible ceasefire solutions, how how difficult is it for not only Americans who always believed that we had a special relationship with Israel, but for the global community as a whole to have the Americans say, we want to negotiate to an organization that was longly thought to be a terrorist organization.
5: So this actually gets pretty deep in the weeds. You know, the State Department's uh, stance on this is, and this is explicit, right? I'm quoting from this afternoon's press conference between State Department spokeswoman Jen Paskey, and she was in an exchange at the time with the Associated Press's veteran diplomatic correspondent, Matt Lee. Uh, you know, they always say, and now I'm quoting from memory, but more or less quoting, we don't negotiate with Hamas. In fact, you know, one of the big sources of tension right now uh, it, that's emerged between our Israeli and our Arab allies on one side and the State Department and the Obama administration on the other side has been this idea that Kerry, some have said recklessly, most, many have said needlessly, brought the Qataris and the Turks in. So the way to think about the Middle East these days is we're really talking about three different factions across the region. We're talking about Iran and their Shia proxies, so that's Syria, that's Hezbollah. Uh, We're talking about the radical kind of extremist Sunni groups, and that's usually taken to be the Muslim Brotherhood and Hamas, which is a Muslim Brotherhood offshoot, Turkey and Qatar. And then America's traditional Arab and Israeli allies, which find themselves in kind of this third block – And what's really uh, become a source of consternation for the Arabs and for the Israelis over the last couple of days is that for many, many, many weeks, the Egyptian proposal was the ceasefire proposal that was on the table. So the Egyptians, the Saudis, and the Israelis tend to find themselves on the same page in the region these days. And that's traditionally how it's been. If you want to deal with the Palestinians in Gaza, you go through Egypt. And then it appeared to many, many, many people that in a last minute move on Friday the secretary of state brought in the Qataris and the Turks and kind of took their proposal which obviously is much more pro Hamas they're aligned with Hamas they're Hamas's biggest backers and tried to present that to the Israelis and that's really where the tension has emerged now there are debates about whether or not that was actually what happened so the state department has said Secretary Kerry didn't actually offer a proposal, and the proposal that he offered was the Egyptian proposal and so on, and that is uh, a he-said-she-said said in the region, and it's a diplomatic he-said-she-said, said. but we do know that both the Israelis and the Palestinian Authority have expressed anger specifically about Kerry uh, becoming very, very close very, very quickly with the Qataris and the Turks, who again are Hamas's main backers.
3: But uh, obviously, the latest comments from Secretary Kerry who have- put a dent in what is already a hugely dented relationship between Tel Aviv and the White House. Prime Minister Netanyahu came out and pretty much scathed the American government and Secretary Kerry for any thought about direct talks with Hamas. Is it just a matter of us getting into the weeds and understanding the facts? Is this a press war that we're now dealing with between Washington and possibly Tel Aviv? Or is the media blowing this out of
5: proportion? No, there's, there's genuine anger on both sides. There's undeniably genuine anger on both sides. Now, the important thing to emphasize at the beginning of all of these conversations is the U.S.-Israel relationship is so deep and on so many levels that these kinds of day-to-day dramas don't really impact it even in the medium term. But if you're asking about the last 48 hours, there's undeniably anger on both sides, and you heard this from American officials as well, the that they think the Israelis are overreacting and the Israelis think they got betrayed. And frankly, if you watch the State Department's uh the State Department press conference just today, it wrapped up about an hour and a half ago. There was a moment where the beginning in fact, where Spokeswoman Pasky was pushed on something that Secretary of State Kerry said. So Secretary of State Kerry said a couple uh just within the last few hours, he said, uh, I I'm paraphrasing, but he said, I don't know what all the fuss is about. Prime Minister Netanyahu asked me to come to the region and mediate and propose a ceasefire. And the Israelis and most journalists thought that that was kind of surreal because, as somebody put it at yesterday's press conference, you know, the Israelis had been asking for breathing room to do it and fought tooth and nail against that kind of mediation effort. So after that happened, Kerry goes and he says... uh, I don't know. understand what's going on. I was asked by Netanyahu to mediate. And so this morning, this, this afternoon, there is an exchange where the State Department spokeswoman is asked, uh, hey, just out of curiosity, what day did Netanyahu ask Kerry to mediate and to propose a ceasefire? And, and spokeswoman Pasky would not answer the question. So she got asked again. No, 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 no. And her answer was, well, you know, they were always talking about a ceasefire. And the reporter who was quizzing her said no what day did Prime Minister Netanyahu ask for uh, Secretary of State Kerry to mediate because the Secretary said, quote-unquote, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu asked me to mediate. And this went on for five minutes with just an absolute refusal to answer. And a lot of people left that room thinking that, uh, you know, Secretary Kerry hadn't so much made things up, but maybe had heard something that wasn't there. A lot of people are speculating that.
3: Well, let's talk about Prime Minister Netanyahu for a second. Uh, we, when we talk about Bibi Netanyahu, we obviously are talking about somebody who has a very strong will, who is obviously going to defend Israel's right to exist. Uh, he's come out and said, look, as long as there are rockets, and I'm paraphrasing, as long as rockets continue to enter Israel, we're going to do whatever it takes to defend ourselves. Uh, it, it, it seems to us that... Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is in this for the long haul. Is, is the global thinking in Israel that this is going to be a long, drawn-out war, or is this something that many is, Israelis are looking to have a quick resolution to that we can get back to normal?
5: It's an excellent question, and many uh, when we get past the diplomatic uh, kind of dimensions, it's the question, Where are the, what are these Israelis doing, what are they thinking? And, of course, the other one is, what is Hamas doing, what is it thinking? But to begin with the Israeli side, we actually have polling data on this. Uh, not we, but it's out there. And overwhelming majorities of Israelis, I saw a number as high as 86%, want the operation to continue until Hamas' is, Hamas's arsenal is severely degraded. Remember, there's a lot of confusion about how this war started. Israel actually has two operations going on right now. One in the West Bank and one in the Gaza Strip. So one to its east and one to its south. The West Bank operation is about the kidnapping and murder of the three Israeli boys, and it targets Hamas's West Bank infrastructure. So there are Hamas operatives, Hamas fighters, and Hamas leaders in the West Bank, and they're being targeted because of their role in the kidnapping and murder of the three Israeli teenagers. There is an entirely separate, unrelated operation going on in the Gaza Strip, and that's what people see on their TVs, and that has to do with Hamas's rockets and Hamas's, uh underground attack tunnels. So in the West Bank, you had a situation where the West Bank Hamas guys decided to escalate and do the kidnapping. And that happened and the Israelis were, are responding. And that's called Operation Brother's Keeper. What people see on their TV is Operation Protective Edge, which is a second operation which was which really has its seeds in Hamas rocket launches that began at the beginning of the year, you know, even before the kidnapping. There had been something, even before the ground invasion, there had been something like 450 rockets fired at Israel without anything really going on. They're just a planned escalation, and that's what brought the Israelis to the Gaza border. And then when they got there, Hamas attempted to do these raids on small Israeli communities, 150 people, 300 people, where they would, really like something out of a movie, they would spill out of tunnels in the dead of night, 13 of them, 20 of them, an attempt to infiltrate a small Israeli community. These are commandos. So one of the ones, the first one that was eliminated, uh, was 13 guys who spilled out about 250 yards from a small, barely protected Israeli community of 150 people. They were carrying RPGs. They were carrying uh, high-capacity Kalashnikovs. They were carrying grenades. And when that happened, the Israelis said, whoa, we have a strategic threat on our hands. We have dozens of tunnels that empty out within five-minute jogs of Israeli border communities. That, has to be, that infrastructure has to be destroyed. And as they went in, and they discovered more of of these tunnels, what they discovered was actually kind of like Bond-esque villain level, or if you want, something out of Vietnam. So there are three sets of tunnels. There's the smuggling tunnels that go between Gaza and Egypt, the attack tunnels that go between Gaza and Israel, and then in between, kind of linking them, is this underground city of hundreds of tunnels, that Hamas uses for command and control, to direct their troops, to store their weapons and so it was discovered that Hamas has been spending millions and millions and millions of dollars and thousands and thousands and thousands of tons of concrete to build themselves this infrastructure which has as its goal storing weapons to fire at Israeli civilians, the rockets and attack tunnels that are used to attack Israeli civilians and those are the things that the Israelis are after, and they're, they will not leave the Gaza Strip until they've eliminated at least the tunnels because those po- – I mean, that is a, that's a catastrophe waiting to happen. It's having commandos on the edge of – the equivalent for us would be on the edge of a Midwestern mall perennially threatening to invade and shoot everybody up and having the capability to do it. How long will it take to destroy the tunnels? The, the estimates are a couple of days to a week.
3: Uh, Omri, we've also heard through several sources, including CNN, that these tunnels were largely built and are largely powered by Israeli-generated power, and the concrete was Israeli concrete subsidized by the Israeli government for the building of schools, the building of community centers, and they've taken that concrete. Is there any accuracy to those reports, including that one from Wolf Blitzer and CNN?
5: That is 100% true. Uh, some of it was subsidized. Much of it was overseas concrete. But what the Israelis did is, under enormous international pressure, including from Washington, D.C., but also from the United Nations and from non-governmental organizations, under enormous pressure, they let up on their bans on, so, uh, on, the, on the import restrictions they had on concrete. The Israelis said... Hamas is using the concrete to bolster its terror infrastructure. We know, for instance, they said at the time, they're building, under, they're building bunkers under hospitals. We don't want to give it to them. And the response they got back, and again, this came from the European Union, from Washington, D.C., from the, from the United Nations, from international human rights organizations, was that can't be true. There's no concrete in Gaza. Look, there's a severe shortage. You need to let more in. So the Israelis proceeded to continue letting more in. Now, who paid for the concrete? Sometimes it was international organizations. Sometimes it was humanitarian organizations. But the critical thing is Israel made the conscious decision for humanitarian reasons to let in the concrete. And then, as you say, it was diverted to uh, using the tunnels. And it's not a small amount of concrete. You know, there are infographics floating around out there that shows they could have built hundreds of clinics. They could have built uh, schools. They could have built... Uh, um, parks for the kids, but they used it to build attack gun- tunnels so that they could try to uh, kill Israeli civilians.
3: Omri, we're, uh, we're monitoring CNN right now, and there's breaking news coming out of Gaza right now. CNN is reporting that they are finding F-16 fighters uh, flying over Gaza in what looks like to be either close ground coverage or a new air offensive. It, it, it seems to me that with all the pictures and now with the escalation of air coverage over Gaza, with all the pictures coming out of Gaza City and the surrounding areas, we're seeing children, we're seeing women either injured or at worst case scenario killed. But it seems that Tel Aviv has got itself in a catch-22 situation, the right to defend itself and the protection of Iron Dome but as long as they keep firing rockets into Israel, there's going to be consequences for that. Is, is this is this a situation right now where Israel is getting hyper-targeted, or is this offensive going to unfortunately have casualties of war as a result of trying to defend their sovereignty?
5: I mean, there will be casualties. It's interesting that you began with... Uh the idea that what the pictures that we're seeing because you know we know for a fact we know uh, and I'll get to why in a second but for a fact we know that Hamas bans photographers in Gaza from taking pictures of dead fighters so when you say we're seeing pictures of kids and women unfortunately you're absolutely right that is what's broadcast but that's because Hamas won't let anything out and how do we know that because we know that journalists are being intimidated to the point where just in the last few hours, Hamas is monitoring all of the Twitter feeds of people in, of journalists in the Gaza Strip. And somebody posted a tweet that said uh, Hamas is, you know, firing near a hospital. And Hamas thugs showed up and made them delete the tweet. And as uh, somebody quipped, you know, uh, after that incident, you know, the smart reporters never delete their tweets because they're smart enough to know that they're not supposed to put that stuff up in the first place, left Hamas, come after them. And so the first thing to say is you're absolutely right. Those are the pictures you're seeing. It is very, very bad for the Israelis that uh, those are out there. They, it creates a negative and false impression of what's going on. But nonetheless, it's what you're seeing. And it goes beyond journalistic intimidation. In fact, the, in the very, very early days of Operation Protective Edge, Hamas' interior ministry posted a video to YouTube instructing Gaza residents on, and this makes perfect sense to a D.C. audience, It was a messaging guide and a talking points guide. So this is a video published by Hamas that literally said, hey, civilians, when journalists talk to you, remember to always begin your sentences with, in light of the Israeli Zionist aggression, dot, dot, dot. Always mention women and children casualties. So they're media training and they're intimidating journalists to ensure that what you said exactly, the pictures that people see are pictures of women and children. That said the Israelis appear to have made a decision that they can no longer permit international double standards international naivete international manipulation to endanger their people and you know they it, it, it's a balance the Israelis keep embracing these humanitarian ceasefires under pressure and Hamas keeps using them to consolidate their troops to recover to regain the temple and to kill Israeli soldiers Israel has lost soldiers because it stood down during ceasefires that Hamas used in order to plant operatives and fighters and militants and terrorists and whatever you want to call them inside of tunnels and send them at Israeli troops where they popped out and started machine gunning people. So I think the Israelis are really because – I think there's, Israelis are getting to a point where they have to say, listen, uh, or they believe they have to say, listen. Uh, We just can't deal with this naivete anymore. It's getting our people killed. And the thing they're pointing to, to bring this around, the thing they're pointing to is the entire fiasco with the tunnels where the international community said to the Israelis, your concerns are overblown, your concerns are overblown, your concerns are overblown, send in more concrete. You have to take risks for peace. You have to take humanitarian risks. And the result is that over 50 Israelis have been killed either directly in attacks facilitated by the tunnels or trying to wipe out the tunnels. Omri, uh,
3: we've noticed that as late as today, Israel has said, quote-unquote, the ball is in Hamas's court. But it seems to me that a logical solution to this might include the head of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas. But yet Abbas seems to have been almost neutralized in all this. Does Abbas look at this as, you know, somehow the authority is going to have to, if they can, flex their muscle and say, look, we've got to put an end to the violence. Let us deal with this. We'll take Hamas's concerns into the room. But as the Palestinian Authority, we're going to be the ones that Tel Aviv will negotiate with.
5: I, I mean, that, that analysis is the, is the analysis that I think most of the professional diplomats are making. You know, one of the, re, one of the reasons why the Palestinian Authority and its president, Mahmoud Abbas, lashed out at, at Secretary of State Kerry for that entire incident we talked about at the top of the hour, the uh, idea of bringing in the Qataris and the Turks and Hamas, is he said, listen, I mean, like it or not, if I'm weak or not, the PLO... Is the internationally recognized uh, organization that is that is authorized to speak on behalf of the Palestinian people. This is kind of an old phrase, a post World War II phrase when we had sub-state groups and there was an organization picked that people could talk to on their behalf or negotiate with on their behalf. So he said the PLO for decades has been internationally recognized as the address for when you want to deal with the Palestinians, and the Palestinian Authority nominally has control over the Gaza Strip. What are you doing? Uh, so first, in answer to, your, to the second half of your question, yes, a thousand percent, there is that sentiment, and there is uh, that frustration on the side of the Palestinians. Now, whether it's diplomatically possible is a different question, and it's a very tangled question, and there's a reason for that that's relatively straightforward. Imagine, yes, it w- everyone's ideal, everyone's ideal is a Palestinian state that lives at peace with Israel. The Palestinian state would be in the Gaza Strip and in parts of the West Bank, and and it would accept peace with Israel. That's everyone's ideal. But the Gaza Strip is currently ruled by Hamas and by a population that may reject Hamas now, but within memory elected Hamas. So you would have to do something to insert Abbas to the Gaza Strip, to help him seize power. Now that can happen one of two ways either it can happen by Israel militarily dismantling Hamas in which case it would be very it would be awkward for Abbas to come in there because it would look like he was doing it on the israelis behalf or Hamas voluntarily hands over the reins to Abbas but then he would be treaty obligated to dismantle Hamas's illegal rockets remember the treaties with israel don't permit Ham- the palestinians to keep these long-range rockets or these, sh- even, or these destructive Qassams, in the Gaza Strip. So Abbas would be expected to demilitarize those rockets. But the problem is you've got a population that's really, really proud of the rockets because it's the only way that they have access to killing Israelis.
3: Congressman Elswit, you have a question for Omri Sernan from the Israel Project? Yes,
1: we've been uh, discussing this matter for several weeks now, of course, because it's been going on for several weeks. Uh, Actually, it's been going on for years. It's been going on for thousands of years, as a matter of fact. And it doesn't seem to get better. I've just been listening very carefully to your remarks uh, here on the program. And if word hopeless doesn't describe the situation, I can't imagine what does. I just am wondering whether there is any way, given the uh, needs of Israel and the attitudes of uh, and needs, in some cases, of uh, their uh, foes, uh, that anything is ever going to be done at all. And it puts the United States and Europe and the United Nations and what have you kind of in a position of keeping the lid on without ever being able to turn the fire off under the pot. Uh, what? What what reaction do you
5: have? Yeah, that is that is the fear, and that's increasingly the consensus. And nobody's really sure what to do about it. In the in the you know most basic sense, what do you do if you've got a population of just let's limit it limited to the Gaza Strip? You got a population of 1.5 million people, of which huge swaths are willing to make incredible sacrifices in pursuit of the destruction of Israel. What do you do? Uh, Now, it was thought decades ago, well, you you give them economic growth, you give them a political horizon, and then you raise a couple of generations where what you're teaching the kids, we now live in peace with our neighbors, there was a war, the war ended, everybody went back to their corners, and now these are our neighbors. And then you slowly create economic integration, political ties, cultural exchanges, and so on. The problem was those decades... In, you mean this? No, it's the theory. theory. Oh. It's a theory, Al. It's a theory. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, uh, the problem is, instead the Palestinians used those decades to, in, to basically raise generations of children who hated the Israelis. And here we are.
3: Uh, Dan Lipner, question for Omri Sernan.
5: Yeah, Amri, uh, I'm just kind of curious. We don't get a lot of coverage as far
1: as,
7: uh, obviously, the, the crisis in Gaza is what's going on with the West Bank. And what is Abbas's relationship with Netanyahu? I mean, Netanyahu known to be
0: rather abrasive to several Western leaders, but what is their relationship like?
5: I mean, they don't like each other. They definitely don't like each other. They are currently united. They're currently united on the level of interests in degrading Hamas In battling something that doesn't get nearly the attention it should Which is Iranian interference Not just in the West Bank but also in Jordan Iranian efforts to just destabilize moderate Arab entities But they certainly don't like each other I think they probably understand each other better Than other leaders may understand Netanyahu Just because it's the same neighborhood and so on But they're also men who pursue the... in. Pursue interests And Abbas For better or worse Abbas believes it's his, in his interest To diverge with the Israelis But he's not in that sense a fanatic He's just somebody that Refuses to come to terms with our Israeli allies
3: Omri uh, Last question here in this segment when, when we look at a possible solution Does the end solution Does the end game In your opinion look like Abbas Netanyahu, with some interaction between the Egyptians and the Qataris and the Turks, is, is is the ideal situation a real possibility?
5: The ideal situation is Hamas agrees to meet its international obligations to disarm. They're not going to do that voluntarily. It's their reason for existing. It's the it's how they it's how they maintain control. Uh, the next version is something like Hamas is hit so hard that they don't try this again for a decade. And you get some combination of Palestinian authority monitoring, and you get a blockade and you get some easing from the Egyptians and so on, and maybe people stumble along for the next decade, like has mostly happened in Israel's north. You know, the Israelis face the same situation in the north where Hezbollah has massive tunnels that go into Israel in preparation for an invasion, but there haven't been rocket attacks, more, or at least not the consistent. there have been rocket attacks, but not the consistent shelling that comes out of Hamas, and that's the result of Israel's 2006 war with Hezbollah. So there's a range all the way from what would be diplomatically ideal to what is militarily possible. But one of the X factors, and I'll leave your listeners with this idea, one of the real X factors is that this war, that is that Hamas's goals for this war have actually very little to do with Israel. And it's not me saying that. It's everybody from the American Task Force for Palestine that says that to Arab affairs journalists and so on. Their real demand is they want the Egyptians to open up the crossing between the Gaza Strip and Egypt's Sinai Peninsula. Egypt won't do it, as long as Hamas is in charge, because the Egyptians are afraid that Hamas, the jihadists will, as they used to under Morsi, under the former Muslim Brotherhood uh, President Morsi in Egypt, will use the opening to move jihadist personnel and materials back and forth. And so when we evaluate the end games, we have to remember that it's not just the Israelis or even the Palestinian authority that has to be involved, but you have to get Egyptian buy-in and the Egyptians and the Saudis along with the Israelis and the Jordanians are aligned against regionally aligned against old school alliances aligned against the Qataris, the Turks and Hamas, which is why this is this which is why on a diplomatic level there have been so many complications.
3: Very good. Very good. Omri Cernan from the Israel Project, thank you very
5: much for joining
3: us today on Backroom Politics. Thank you for having me. When we come back, we're going to be talking midterm elections. John Freshman joins us for a discussion on can the Republicans take it back or... And we're back here live at Shelley's back room, thirteen thirty-one F Street in the heart of the nation's capital, Washington D.C. This is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining us now from New York, she is the spokesperson for the organization that we know as UNICEF, Sarah Crow. Sarah, thank you for joining us on
2: Backroom Politics. You're welcome. Thank you for having me.
3: Sarah, let's let's start off first by asking, you know, we, we see a lot of the UNICEF ambassadors and we see the annual fundraising campaigns, but I don't think a lot of, particularly in the United States, people understand exactly what is UNICEF and what is their mission globally.
2: Well, UNICEF is in 190 countries around the world. What makes UNICEF different from other UN agencies is is that we have our national committees in all the industrialized countries. So, for instance, in the United States, we have the U.S. fund for UNICEF, and that's what most Americans would see here, in uh, in the US Uh, so UNICEF differs depending on the territory so right now the emergencies of the world South Sudan Central African Republic Iraq Syria that's where we're very active on humanitarian the humanitarian crises uh, and of course then when you have a natural disaster as we saw at the end of last year with Philippines with floods with earthquakes uh, that's where our emergency room kicks into gear, but we're also working in the middle-income countries, working with governments to try and improve their policies, uh, so that children benefit from the changes in those countries as well.
3: Sarah, can you explain the UNICEF acronym? Uh, because again, everybody knows it as UNICEF, but you know we we hear it called the United the United Nations Children's Emergency Fund, the International Children's Fund. What does UNICEF stand for, and how does it fit into the larger global UN community?
2: Well, that's interesting because the E has become somewhat redundant over the years. Uh, UNICEF is one of the oldest UN agencies, and we were started just after the Second World War. And, of course, you would know probably the story of Audrey Hepburn, who was one of our earlier ambassadors, as you are asking about Goodwill Ambassadors. And she herself as a young girl in Holland after the Second World War was one of those who benefited from UNICEF's work on the ground there in the late 40s. And she benefited in terms of of milk supplementation, food supplementation and education. So in the early days it was emergencies and then the E became education. But now basically UNICEF stands for wherever there are children in need, We're there. We're on the ground. We have presence in 190 countries around the world. And we deliver health, education, uh, nutrition. So it's not just about supplies, but it's also about policies. Child protection, of course, is is a huge issue for us, whether it's child soldiers or children on the streets. So it's a very, very broad mandate, uh, all things that involve children.
3: Sarah, let, let's talk about. Right now, it seems that that children globally are in a state of crisis in many regions of the world. Let's let's talk about some of the key hotspots. Number one, Syria. Uh, how dangerous is it for children in Syria that you know of, and how how much of a humanitarian crisis? has come out of that. We've heard of polio outbreaks, we've heard of other diseases, as well as just the massive influx into refugee camps. How how, how much of a crisis is this for UNICEF?
2: It's probably the, the most complex we've ever had to deal with because what's happening in Syria is, of course, affecting an entire region, and as you know now in the past 10 days, also affecting Iraq. So we have multiple layers of crises, and children are always at the forefront of these, and 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 are the worst hit. Uh, you mentioned polio. Polio. We had a polio outbreak in Syria. They haven't been, haven't seen uh, any cases of polio since the late 19, 1990s in the whole of the Middle Middle East, Iraq, Syria, etc. And the outbreak of, of of polio is really an indication or to what extent the health services have broken down. Polio is a bit like the canary in the mine shaft because we had one case and for every one case you've got 200 children infected with polio. So polio, of course, is not the worst that can happen to children. There are so many other things, but it's a very good indication of how bad the situation is for children. So we see this spillover effect. We're now in well over the third year of the crisis in Syria, and it's, inf- it's affecting the entire region. And now we, we have this... Uh, Compacted and and more complicated uh, crisis now uh, in Iraq, and what it means for us on the ground is, you know, UNICEF works with governments, we work with NGOs, we work with communities, so we work at all levels of um, of 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 societies. But crucially, what is is important is that governments lead on the response. When you have a a government that is effectively under attack or being seen as as taking sides one way or another, we have to be extremely, extremely careful that we maintain a non-political and neutral, uh, impartial approach to all our programming so in the case of Syria, we work with the Syria Red Cross to try to get across the lines, to get, uh, to get help in where it is needed most, and that's usually where children are hardest, hardest to reach uh, because of the conflict. And of course, conflict is, uh, is, is the worst for children because they are the ones who are, going to, who are going to bear the brunt of not having access to health services, not having access to, to education, and all manner of necessities, of basic necessities in life.
3: Now, now, Sarah, we also talked about on the show a couple of weeks ago, uh, one of our colleagues here around the table, Alan Moore, who used to be the Undersecretary for International Affairs at our Department of Commerce, Uh, he, He was talking about the situation in Pakistan, which became complex in our eyes, when the Pakistani government literally kicked out the World Health Organization and I believe also discharged UNICEF out of Pakistan because they felt that they were a spy organization for Western allies. Is that a problem that you're seeing become more prevalent in the region? And how is UNICEF dealing with that concern?
2: No, neither UNICEF nor the World Health Organization were expelled from Pakistan. We've continued to work there throughout, and, uh, and, and you know our mandate is to stay and deliver, no matter how hard the circumstances, whether it's war, conflict, or, uh, or humanitarian, or, um, or natural disasters. Uh, Pakistan, you're talking now about, about polio particularly. Polio has retreated to some of the most hostile corners on Earth the small the northwest frontier provinces of pakistan is where the polio eradication campaign has had difficulty operating in the past 18 months but we are making inroads through communities working at various levels so we're now seeing only 1% of the world that is infected three endemic countries uh that three endemic polio countries that's pakistan afghanistan and nigeria but we're seeing some very good news coming out of nigeria and uh, no cases in in the last couple of weeks uh, only three cases this year of the wild polio virus type one so uh, pakistan continues to be the kind of engine of uh, of the polio virus and uh, and that is of course of concern, but the Pakistan government leads, as do all governments, lead in uh, in these campaigns. So they are at the forefront. Uh, UNICEF's role is to support with vaccines. We procure the vaccines. We train up the workers. We, actually, polio is a quite an easy, an easy operation to train people for because it's just the two uh, oral polio drops, the OPV as they're called, oral polio vaccine. And uh, this is easy to administer, but you have to set up a whole cold chain uh, that has to be in place, and that has to be maintained, which is an enormous challenge in some of uh, some of this very difficult, dry, hot uh, terrain as uh, as in Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Nigeria um, and these are These are the difficult areas at the in the world right now. But we're seeing some very promising um, promising cases coming out of all three countries, promising results. Refusals, for instance, were down. Some years ago, there were families uh, and communities who were refusing due to suspicion, much like you have in the United States. I mean, just now with your m- measles outbreak, you, you do have areas of, of suspicion. You have areas of r- rumors that have to be counteracted. Uh, so so th- those remain, um, those those remain some of the areas that we have to work very hard on, but we've seen the rate of refusals come right down. So again, some promising progress there too. When, when
3: you, you had mentioned Nigeria, and, and that brings up the question of Africa, and, and in particular Nigeria, uh, obviously the concern of UNICEF with uh, the recent actions of organizations like Boko Haram in Nigeria and other Maltreatment of children is 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 Africa a, a, a hot spot for not so much the health concerns but the general welfare concerns whether it's education treatment etc for UNICEF.
2: Well, Africa is hard to put into one one basket. Uh, it's it's several countries and uh, nearly a billion people on the continent of Africa. Uh, we're seeing such uh, such different kind of pictures. I've spent actually most of my life in Africa, primarily in the south. And, uh, you know, from South Africa to Nigeria to Kenya, we've seen strong economic growth. You've seen uh, a strong middle class coming out of those countries. So it's a really different picture. Uh, The global trends, which of course you do see in Africa as well, tend to to go towards this view that you're having, it's not so much rich countries and poor countries anymore, but it's rich people in poor countries and poor people in rich countries. So it's much more about equity, it's much more about getting a focus in those countries on the poorest, the worst, the, the most neglected, children who are marginalized. And, and left behind, sometimes um, sometimes purposefully, that they're communities that don't fit in, uh, communities that are moving through, migrant communities. So those are, those are the communities that are always the most vulnerable, and then the children amongst them, of course, are the ones that need uh, the great, greatest care and support. So within Africa, you have uh, you have a very mixed picture from, um, from very sort of developed uh, corners of Africa, such as um, Nairobi, Johannesburg, Cape Town, etc., cetera, uh, to, um, to Central African Republic and South Sudan. Uh, and these, t- these two countries at the moment are of enormous concern to UNICEF because, because of the conflict, and that means fear of disease outbreaks, malnutrition, and all the awful horrors that, uh, that beset children at a time of conflict.
3: Sarah you you mentioned uh, economic disparity is is that a bigger issue globally than you've seen ever in the history of UNICEF
2: it's hard to get a a perspective over 70 years but certainly we're seeing um, we're seeing really good progress again going back to Africa you know I remember as a journalist in the in the mid-80s working in Ethiopia um, on the huge famine you'd know the story about this kind of biblical famine of Ethiopia were uh, half a million um, well some, some half a million children were dying uh, each year just simply because of the famine, because of lack of services, because of lack of health care because of poor nutrition and Today that figure in Ethiopia is down to around seventy children dying a year now that still means seventy children is seventy children too much for each for each one of those each one of those children uh, is a deep loss to to their parents, but it is still enormous progress we've seen very promising progress uh, in in uh, niger as well uh, Ethiopia as I mentioned Uganda has also cut its child mortality rates so so this shows that there is progress it is promising and that uh, that aid works if you 've got the right level of political uh, leadership and commitment, as well as all the other the other services in place.
3: Congressman, now you have a question for
1: Sarah Crow from UNICEF. I, I do. Uh, children have a habit of growing up. Uh, <laughs> they do. I, I'm wondering what uh, what do you see as the record over the 70 years that you've been doing this, uh, as to how these have improved the lives of. Uh, adolescence and then on into uh, uh, the, the years when people would be looking for jobs and raising families and so forth.
2: Right, well you mentioned adolescence, uh, that that of course we, we, we sort of focus on the under 18s, that's um, of course how you define to find children, although some are growing up much quicker than, than that really. But. Uh, what we're seeing is, uh, for instance, if you look at HIV and AIDS, now going back um, 10 years ago when I started with, with UNICEF, the countries that we were really concerned about at that time were the small southern African countries of Botswana, Lesotho, Namibia, Swaziland, Zimbabwe, uh, and then, of course, bigger countries like South Africa and Mozambique, Zambia. They were all deeply, deeply affected by the HIV and AIDS crisis. And there were extremely high levels of uh, child mortality um, due to mothers passing on the virus uh, at birth and uh, during pregnancy and at birth. And it was so extreme that the very existence of some of those small nations was threatened. What we see today, and it's a very realistic view, is that for the first time, it looks like we could have an AIDS-free generation in the coming two years, which is of course something to be be celebrated. We're still seeing a um, a, a worrying picture for adolescents, so that is an area where we have to continue to focus on very heavily. But it is really thanks to uh, enormous global efforts that we've seen the rate of uh, mortality drop dramatically. in uh, in small children. Now with education as well, we've seen uh, far more children in school, far more girls in school. And when you get girls in school, you get what we call a double dividend because of course the girls are inclined to invest far more in the health of their children. uh, And by one year extra in school is going to give them a, a a much more of a boost for their income. And that means that they will put that back into their children. So we're seeing some, some promising uh, progress there too, but of course adolescents remain, um, remain a concern. Sarah, you
3: mentioned uh, one of your comments about uh, migrant children. Uh, is UNICEF involved or have they been monitoring the situation on the southern U.S. border with the influx of unaccompanied children coming in from El Salvador, Honduras, and Nicaragua? And what is UNICEF's role?
2: Yes, absolutely. Well, we don't have programs in the United States and in countries that are as developed as here, industrialized countries of Europe and North America. We don't actually have programs, but of course we do and we're very active in uh, Central America and, and Latin America generally. So, in many ways, this is a push pull factor. The conditions and this is what we we wrote about and have have done a lot of advocacy work in the past couple of weeks when we saw the numbers of, of children increasing uh, it 's the fact the factors that push them out of the countries where they come from as well a cho- a children always are best off in their own communities in their own homes where possible and not in any in any other form of uh, of, of detention centers uh, should only ever be seen as they are here as temporary solutions. We're seeing a picture, this is also of course the summer season, so uh, so this is how it changes in in the US but also in Europe where we see very high numbers of of children coming in uh, from Syria, refugees landing in particularly in southern Italy has had a very high number of uh, of child migrants um, this year. So what that means is that we have to advocate go- with governments to, um, to, to ensure that they've got all the right kind of help that they need, that they're getting medical attention, that they're getting, that they're getting good nutrition, that their families are being traced where possible, uh, and, and all of those necessary steps are taken in the right way. And, of course, it's about creating an awareness and um, getting homegrown solutions uh, in particular where the children come from in the first place.
3: Dan Lipner, question for Sarah Crowe from UNICEF.
2: Yeah,
1: Sarah, I'm, I'm kind of curious, with, with the new fighting in Iraq and everything else going on there, oh, what are you seeing as far as the, the, the effects on children in the region, but also what can be done
5: to respond to the needs there on the ground?
2: Right. Well, our main focus right now, given the soaring summer temperatures, is really water and sanitation, getting out hygiene kits to where they're needed. Uh, it's setting up child-friendly spaces, so they have a place to play. They have a way of kind of maintaining a form of uh, separation from the conflicts around them. It's a very, very fluid situation, and one, uh, as I say, with the with the influx of of both the Syrian refugees as well as internal displacement, uh, it it has created a multi-layered uh, crisis for for. All of the communities, and of course, UNICEF is, is doing its best to respond. But it is um, right now something of uh, of the finger in the dike. It's um, it's 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 a deep concern to us at the moment.
5: So, do you have the resources you need to 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 respond, or is it just the the issues on the ground that are making it so complex?
2: Well, it's a combination of of both um, because because of the um, the Protracted nature of the Syrian crisis The solution is obviously peace that, w- that, is going to, that is going to Create an environment Where you won't have people on the run You won't have this overflow Into, Ira- into Iraq or Lebanon or Jordan Or any of the other Turkey as well is, is, is impacted So you know, if, if, there were, if there was A focus on peace And that's not the area that we, we Are directly involved in But obviously we advocate for that uh, in terms of the resources, we're reassessing our appeal at the moment, and, and we will have to work out exactly what is needed based on the, the needs assessment on the ground. But this crisis right now is bigger than any one agency, is bigger than any one government. So it is it is beyond the capacity of just UNICEF to deal with it. It, it is it is a global crisis now.
3: Congressman
1: Al, question for Sarah Crow. <coughs> the. Uh... The recent action on the part of certain families in South America that have been sending their children by the bundles to the United States uh, to get them out of the kinds of problems they have at their home uh, is probably primarily a United States problem uh, because uh, we're a rich country. But uh, does UNICEF have concern about things like that, where you have mass movement of children uh, for, for safety reasons.
3: Well, let me let me follow up with that real quickly, Sarah. Is you know one of the one of the concerns I know that the American government and uh, Department of Homeland Security uh, Secretary Jay Johnson talked about it earlier in a congressional hearing on Capitol Hill. Uh, one of the big concerns is is the uh, proliferation of youth gangs. Gangs such as m s thirteen the suertas etc are, are, are those concerns that UNICEF is trying to at least educate families and children on on the on the on the terror that might be involved in being part of those types of organizations
2: absolutely, and right now you know it 's a bit much further south, of course, but Brazil with the World Cup. Um, UNICEF is very active on the ground, working with, uh, with communities to try and create a sports for development, um, because sports, of course, is such a, has such a profoundly healing effect on uh, on children and communities. So the same, the same is happening to a lesser or greater extent, depending on where you are in Latin America. But it's... Poverty is driving this as well, of course. So it is uh, it is multi-layered and complex, and uh, and that's why you have this push-pull uh, push-pull effect in the in Central America right now, which is seeing a very tragic uh, situation with with so many children um, leaving their homes. But and in terms of in terms of gangs, it really does require, and uh, and it is happening. But obviously, it's never enough. Uh, working working with communities uh, communities on the ground in all of those countries, so that you you don't have um, children running in fear or or indeed being used by gangs um, for to further their own means.
3: Uh, Sarah Crow, we've got a couple more we got just a couple of minutes left in the segment. Uh, real quickly, uh, Secretary General Ban Ki Moon, he's obviously very supportive of UNICEF. Is he spearheading a a new campaign that you guys are trying to uh, push out as a result of the the areas of crisis, i.e., Iraq, Syria, Pakistan?
2: Certainly, he would be on behalf of all the United Nations agencies, and and UNICEF, of course, is is one of the one of the biggest, um, together with. The refugee agency and World Health Organization, and so on. So he would represent and, uh, and advocate on behalf of all um, UN agencies when it comes to something like access. That's more through um, through Bar- Baroness uh, Valerie Amos, who who works very actively to ensure that humanitarian agencies on the ground continue to have to have access in times of conflict. UNICEF has a long history you might know of for instance in Sudan before the separation of South Sudan and North Sudan or Sudan itself uh, Operation Lifeline Sudan which was the first time during our executive director at the time Jim Grant who started something called Days of Tranquility and this was negotiating with communities on the ground with governments, with conflicting parties uh, warring parties to to get them to stop fighting uh, for a period so that children could be vaccinated and they could be reached uh, with nutrition, their nutrition needs, health needs, and so on. So this is something that we try to replicate uh, depending on the circumstance, but we are seeing a far more complex picture of these humanitarian crises now unfolding. It is far simpler and far far easier to, to fundraise for uh, when you have a natural disaster, such as a flood, an earthquake, a hurricane, typhoons, those kinds of things, rather than Political crises, because there's an inclination for those who are not impacted by a political crisis to blame the leaders, and that's quite right. but it is children who are, who are impacted by this, and it's through no fault of their own that they are touched by it. So that's what we try to remind the world through media, through donors, through, through governments, that, it is, that, you, that that it has to be focused on them and their needs because they are the building blocks of every nation.
3: Sarah, final question. Uh, When we talk about the finances, does UNICEF currently have the financial means to deal with the crises before it? And what can the general public, our listening public, and the American public as a whole do to help support the good work that UNICEF does globally?
2: Well, it's, it's never enough, is it? It's, it's always going to be because with each new crisis comes another layer of demand. And, you know, within the past uh, Central African Republic and South Sudan, the conflict there broke out in mid-December last year. So, of course, you can be prepared <clears throat> and you can have risk reduction policies in place. Uh, but you can 't really plan for the unforeseeable uh when you have a protracted emergency so so there's, there's it's never it 's never too much, and we have to uh, we have to put out extra appeals every time we have these new crises and of course you know whether it 's um on on top of this we might face a natural disaster somewhere so um so we have to always have a have some set aside funds to be prepared. For uh, for something like that. So yes, the general public, I think, can advocate for for children's rights, um, for children's rights, and for their well-being, and uh, and support organisations uh, like UNICEF and so many other very good organisations around the world who are doing the best they can under extraordinarily difficult circumstances at the moment.
3: Well, that's fantastic, uh, Sarah Crow. Chief Spokesperson for UNICEF. Sarah, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. We urge all our listeners to support UNICEF and the good work that they do globally. It's a really tough mission, and you guys do fantastic work. Sarah Crowe, thank you very much.
2: Thank you very much. Regards to all.
3: There we go. We're back on the air. There we go. And joining me to my 12 o'clock. He is the former Secretary of Transportation, former congressman from Illinois, Republican, and longtime Washington insider and a good friend of the show now. He is the honorable former Secretary of Transportation, Ray LaHood. Secretary, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, thank
6: you Justin. Glad to be here. We
3: are so excited to have you here. You know, this is an honor. You know, we we, we, we always... Love having uh, you know figure such of yourself here on backroom politics this is a way for us to get the non political unsanitized version of Washington out to the public out to the people and we're so glad you are able to join us uh, I just want to start in, in focusing on you for a second if I could mr. secretary um, you know when we look when you look back at your career and you just finished up as the secretary of transportation as a Republican for the Democratic administration under President Obama. When you look back at it, did you feel that there was some sort of inequity or some sort of party tension between serving as a cabinet secretary in a Democratic administration and only one of two Republicans in the cabinet
6: itself, or
3: was it just we're part of the team?
6: Well, I certainly felt a part of the team, and I also felt uh, because of my long-standing friendship with the President, which goes back to our days when we served in the Illinois delegation. He as a U.S. Senator and me as a U.S. Congressman, uh, we developed a a very strong friendship over that two-year period, worked very closely together on issues for Illinois. And then when I joined the Cabinet, uh, I felt very warmly welcome and uh, felt like um, we were a part of a team of people that uh, really, our our number one goal, at least for the first couple of years, was to get the economy going, and DOT played a big, big part in that. We got 48 billion dollars out of the economic stimulus program, created 65,000 jobs with 15,000 projects. So, I think we made a huge contribution to uh, the effort to get the economy moving and put people to work, and uh, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. We had a great time. Well, let's talk a little bit about stimulus. If
3: we can, Mr. secretary, you know. There was a lot of criticism as far as these shovel-ready programs were coming out, Uh, but we always got the impression that when when we talked about when we heard out of you and out of your uh, department these shovel ready programs ready to go that created jobs that these weren't just some flights of fancy you guys put some serious thought into what in fact was
6: shovel ready and ready for government funding is that accurate it is accurate we we were able to get 48 billion dollars spent in two years 28 billion on roads and bridges 8 billion on transit 8 billion in helping the president inaugurate high-speed rail, a billion dollars for airports around the country. And the reason we were able to do it is because of our great partnerships uh, with governors, with state DOTs, with airports, with transit districts, great relationships developed over a long period of time so that we knew and they knew what projects needed to be funded, when they needed to be funded, and then we we provided the funding. Uh, and. The, the real thrill of this was seeing people go to work, seeing roads uh, being repaid, seeing bridges being fixed, seeing runways being fixed, and no bad stories. Two years, 48 billion, not a bad story about any money being misspent, but again, it goes to the point of our partnerships that we've had over a long period of time at DOT. How how important were the industry
3: relationships in setting forth those projects? You know, we we see a lot of, whether it's the American Trucking Association, whether it's the rail groups, or even AOPA
6: in the aviation side,
3: did they play an influential role in helping you come up what were the
6: right programs? The groups that played a very influential role were the contractors, contractors all over the country that were ready, willing, and able to Get these contracts from the state or get a contract from an airport or get a contract from a transit district, spend the money properly, put people to work. Contractors were ready uh, because there was a pent-up demand for these dollars and a pent-up demand for really putting people to work and getting these projects going. So the, so the idea that the stimulus didn't work, it worked when it came to DOT. It worked in terms of $48 billion. It worked in terms of jump-starting uh, the transportation and infrastructure economy. Now, you're talking about the $48 billion
3: that you spent that were directly into these shovel-ready programs. Any indication as to what the ripple effect of that $48 billion was?
6: Well, as I said, we created 65,000 jobs, 15,000 projects, a lot of runways were repaved. A lot of roads were resurfaced. A lot of bridges were fixed. Fifty-year-old uh, transit districts around the country benefited from the $8 billion. Uh, and uh, we, we just felt like we did it the right way and couldn't have done it without our partners. When,
3: when we look at the transportation infrastructure, we, there are many people, both on the Hill and across the country, that are saying that, you know, although we made a good step forward with some of the shovel-ready programs that we have, we still have a antiquated, almost failing transportation infrastructure.
6: Do you agree with that, assessment? I agree with that, Justin. Uh, America is one big pothole. We, we are way, way behind. We used to be number one in infrastructure. We used to be number one in our ability to fund big projects. We can't do that any longer. People are afraid to vote for an increase in the gas tax. The resources aren't there, so we're being outcompeted. Uh, by China, which is building 85 new airports this year. They're building new roads, new bridges, uh, all over Europe. Uh, they, they're, they're, everybody is doing more than, than we're doing in America. What what we, mean? And, and When the Congress did pass a transportation bill, rather than a six-year, big, bold bill, they passed a two-year bill. First time in the history that was done, because they weren't willing to come up with the money to do something bold. But how do, we, uh, how do
3: we here in Washington market the idea of, look, we've got to spend money to help improve this antiquated infrastructure that,
6: quite literally, the American economy and the American public depend on? Where's the well, it's going to take that? the people to convince their representatives that they're going to have to make some tough votes to put together a big, bold plan and also to fund it? The gas tax hasn't been raised since 93. When it was raised in 93, half of it went for deficit reduction and the other half went for infrastructure. The key is not only raising the gas tax, but indexing it, and if you index it then over a period of time, you begin to keep up with inflation.
3: Well, we've heard the idea, and we've talked about this idea several times on the show and previous shows that we've done talking about transportation infrastructure. One of the questions that keeps coming up is, instead of relying on the gas tax, instead of relying on raising taxes, the idea of an infrastructure bank might be
6: feasible. Is that feasible? Of course it is, and uh, Congress h- hadn't been willing to go along with it. Why not? Uh, they, they think it takes away their, their prerogative to, uh, to have something to say about the funding. But le- let me tell you what the Congress did do they really increased the TIFIA loan program. This is like an infrastructure bank. They increased it to $2 billion over the two-year period. And what it means is you can come to DOT with a bridge project or you can come to DOT with a big road project, we give you a loan, and you leverage millions, billions of other private and public dollars in order to build the bridge, Uh, in order to build a bridge like what they're trying to do out in Al's state uh, that he once represented, the the Columbia River Crossing, a big bridge project where they're using the TIFIA loan program. To a smaller extent, people have used the TIGER program. This is the program that people can come directly to DOT and actually get a grant for up to $20 million. So there's been a couple of little fixes, but we need a big, bold, plan. And to your point about just using the gas tax, we have the TIFIA loan program, we have the TIGER program. We need to allow for the use of tolling, allow for the use of vehicle miles traveled. Everything should be on the table, not just one pot of money, but several options for people to choose from. But it seems that the Republicans on the Hill, your former party,
3: still seems to be reluctant to talk about that because that seems like it's going to cost the taxpayers
6: more money. Is that true? In places, Well, it's true that politicians in Washington are afraid to talk about the revenue (laughs) or raising the revenue. Yeah, that part's true. But in places like in California or a few other states where they've gone to the people and said raise the sales tax one penny, and in California you have to get 60% of the vote to do that, they almost always do it because they know the money's going to fix a pothole in front of their house or fix a bridge that's falling down or fix a transit system when people know the money is going to be spent to help uh with infrastructure infrastructure they almost always do But you know it.
3: we, we I, I go back to a state I'm very familiar with Florida and sure. I look at the you know the transportation trust right. funds that they had in Florida which you're familiar with, a lot of that money that was to go to infrastructure improvements, particularly in the roads, were being used to supplement funding for building jails in Gadsden County, for building new buildings in other parts of the state. They weren't focused on roads. Does DOT have any play in that, or should they have a play in how they use
6: these transportation trust funds? the, The governors and the state DOTs have jurisdiction over what projects get funded, Now, sometimes they use federal money. Sometimes they use their own gas tax money and match it with the federal money, but there's a good collaboration. But governors and state DOTs do have some say in what roads, bridges, and other infrastructure gets built, of course.
7: Okay. Bob Hines? Uh, Mr. Secretary, I I think what I hear you saying is the way to raise the kind of money we need to improve our infrastructure is not just to – say, let's go raise taxes, but let's use a series of programs that are attached to
6: transportation. That's exactly right. Bob. And people will be more happy to you pay, pay, those, pay those bills. Exactly. We cannot rely on just one pot of money. We use the gas taxes. We use the trust fund to build the interstate. I'm not saying it's antiquated, but... That fund needs to be replenished, and we need to think about other opportunities, like the TIFI loan program, like the TIGER program, like VMTs, like tolling, so that it's not just one pot you're always relying on. It's several streams of revenue to, to really get us back to being number one. Denise crap. And,
2: Justin, on the maritime side, you've got two additional pots. You've got the harbor maintenance Tax, which everybody's been using but for harbor maintenance. So I would say let's start focusing on that. And then the other part is on the shipbuilding. As you know, my background is maritime, and it's the Title 11 program. It's a billion-dollar program. We need to be using that money to build ships.
3: Oh, I was going to bring that up, Mr. Secretary. You know, for years the maritime industry has been talking about the Title 11 program. The 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 maritime blue highway is continuously looked at as a increasingly important piece of our infrastructure but not so much your department but the administrations including your republican predecessors have been reluctant to fund the title 11 shipbuilding program why is that why is there a reluctance to create the shipbuilding jobs to create uh american built Jones
6: act ships using that fund and that guarantee i think you're going to see a shift um And that shift is going to come when Congress passes in the House Um, a very good word of bill that's been put together by the Transportation Committee. puts a lot of emphasis on our waterways, puts a lot of emphasis on the maritime industry, and makes a shift so that the harbor maintenance fee can be used for what it was intended, to get ports open, to dredge ports, to get deeper ports so that when the Panama Canal opens, ports all over the country can take advantage of all of the new capacity that's going to be created at the Panama Canal. Will, will it include the infrastructure at the ports level? Because right now, the only two ports that could possibly
3: take the super-duper Panama ships and the increased capacity of the Panama Canal are L.A., Long Beach, and possibly New York. And even New York's got to dredge to get some of the bigger ships under the Verrazano Arrows. Will that include creating the infrastructure and the ports being allowed to build on that money? What, what, the,
6: what the ports need are the resources from the harbor maintenance fee to dredge in order to get deeper ports and also to increase their capacity to receive more cargo. The of bill changes the direction. Right now, the harbor maintenance fee is being used for deficit reduction. It should be used. It should be going into these ports to give them the kind of capacity they need, and also uh, their ability to dredge to get deeper ports. If this bill passes, that will happen. What about, now, looking at the maritime side, similar concerns have been talked about
3: in the aviation side.
2: Uh, the ability
3: for airports, more regional airports, to increase their capacities, to modernize their facilities, to get more passenger traffic in, uh, and even some of the general aviation uh, airports, your larger ones are starting to take some of that overflow and in coming into their infrastructure. Quite frankly, they're saying they don't have the infrastructure to handle a lot of that overflow. It, taking out the FAA, just the infrastructure sign, would the WERDA bill uh, assuage some of those concerns? word is
6: primarily dealing with our waterways. It is, okay. It is, yeah. Our rivers, uh, as you call it, uh, what we call the marine highway, okay. using the waterways. Uh, increasing capacity at the ports, changing the direction of the harbor maintenance fee so that it really can be used to increase capacity at ports. But let me just say a word about our airports. The Congress did pass a four-year FAA bill. Most of the emphasis in that bill is getting the airports to next-generation technology, to getting to state-of-the-art technology. That has been implemented in several airports around the country. Uh, because of sequestration, which is a terrible, terrible idea. Nobody would do budgeting by sequestration uh, except the federal government. It's a lousy idea. It's hurt the ability of the FAA to really implement next-gen the way that they want to do it. But given these opportunities, at some point, every airport in the country will have the best technology to guide planes safely, to save jet fuel, to guide planes uh, uh, in a more direct route in and out of airports and it also helps the airlines get the technology in the airplanes that has been slowed down though by sequestration how how, how far because i know that the faa when they were talking about next
3: gen the first the first round of next gen was already supposed to be starting to be implemented
6: it's starting to year. be implemented but it's slowed way down with how far
3: behind is next gen
6: uh well like everything else in the government the sequestration has made huge huge meat axe cuts Uh, in every budget so that people are being laid off programs are being cut and it's inhibiting the FAA from really moving ahead the way they want
3: as as a secretary and as a former member of Congress you obviously had the ability to talk in their language up on the Hill uh, with your former colleagues was that helpful in dealing with Congress and trying to get
6: one of the best advantages I had in this job is having served in the house 17 years as a staffer and 14 years as a member. I knew all of the members. I was able to call them and talk to them. I was able to relate to them. I was able to help them with their infrastructure needs. It was a huge advantage that I had over every other uh, cabinet member who had not had the advantage of serving as a staffer and uh, as a member.
3: Did did that connectivity help at least or did you at least try to convince your former colleagues that look we cannot maintain our current infrastructure the way it is by sequestration? How hard
6: was getting that yeah, argument? Well look it, look it. they know that. They know that. Then why would they then why because is sequestration because the issue of forty members of the House who believe they were elected to come to Washington and do nothing and stop everything has inhibited Congress from making any progress. No appropriation bills passed. No budget passed. No immigration bill passed. No tax reform passed. Stopped by 40 members, Republican members of the House, who believed they were elected to do nothing and to stop everything. How hard was it to actually run
3: national transportation programs without a budget. You haven't seen a you didn't see a budget the entire time you were Secretary.
6: Well you? they did pass a two year bill and we impl- we began to implement that bill called MAP twenty one. They did pass a four year FAA bill and that helped us with next gen. The problem that really occurred is when sequestration clicked in uh, starting January first. Again a meet axe approach, an approach that nobody using any logic would use to do budgeting and really inhibited every agency of government from uh, doing what they want to do.
3: When, when, when people look back as your term as a congressman, uh, what do you feel was your greatest legacy as a congressman representing the folks down in southern Illinois?
6: Oh, well, look, at uh, first of all, uh, as Al knows, uh, because he served, uh, you vote on, you vote on the big issues, the tough issues, uh, you think you can make a difference doing that? You try and make a difference in your own district, and uh, and, and then just you know being a part of uh, a Congress that uh, you know really took on the big issues. I, I was in Congress when 9/11 occurred. I was at the Capitol when those planes uh, uh, crashed into uh, two buildings in New York, one building here, and, and, and the crash in Pennsylvania, and 3,000 of our citizens were were killed. Um, so. What you do, you make a difference in many different ways, in your own district, in the way that you vote here, in in your ability to, to do big things and to solve big problems. That doesn't exist today. When Al was there and when I was there, even though there were disagreements, in the end, we did big things. We solved big problems. We came together because we were willing to compromise, talk to one another, work together. That's what America's always been about until right up to the last two years. America's always been about doing big things, solving big problems, always by compromise. No one of the 535 in the Congress gets their own way. We only get big things done. We only solve big problems. We only make a difference when we work together. Well, Bob I'm, I'm, well, Hines, I'll let you go first, and I'll I sure go. wish that
7: that last statement would be written down and mailed to every member of the House and Senate. Well, we can get the transcripts, Bob. <laughs> that's easy. Boy, that is exactly what well, needs. Well,
6: in be here, Al. You, you know,
1: know what? Awesome. Awesome.
7: I think should be tattooed on their foreheads. <laughs> well, <laughs> not see it. How about a? Well, put, put oh, it backwards. So when <laughs> they how, shave, how, it, how about it on, everybody, <laughs> on everybody's back so you can see everybody else's?
1: <laughs> it well, that's exactly comes what comes from, from Al. I, I, th- I think that he's put it so well that, that, that it's hard to. To say anything except repeat what uh, what the the secretary said, the short-sightedness I think is also in part because over the years, public works got it it got a maybe a maybe it's fair maybe it wasn't, but for being kind of a pork barrel thing and uh, somebody once said a uh, fork barrel project is is a, is a good project in somebody else's district. Uh, and I, I think that also being able to get more people to understand what the secretary said about how the, the money was spent and not wasted and not building bridges to nowhere and that kind of thing would help the public's attitude towards spending money considerably. And I don't think that message got out to the degree that it would have
7: been. Well let yeah. me have for every twenty miles of highway rebuild or something or put a bridge together, there's always a bridge to nowhere and everybody remembers that. Right. But they don't remember all the good things that get done.
3: But I want to ask the Secretary uh, on that point exactly, Bob and Al, is when you talk about these large transportation infrastructure programs, like, for example, in New York, the rebuilding of the Tappan Zee Bridge. Right. Critical. Which is in for a tiffy alone. Exactly. But – when you're in Nebraska and you see the Cap and Z Bridge, that screams pork. When they hear the Bridge to Nowhere, that is the poster child for pork. How do you convince, as Secretary of Transportation, the American general electorate that, no, 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 no. no. That Cap and Z Bridge project could
6: affect how much you pay for something at Home Depot or IKEA? Well, look, par- part of being in, in a position in government, whether you're a member of Congress, And you have to go back home and explain to people why you voted the way that you did. You go back home and explain to people, this is what this issue was about. And and do it in, take more than 30 seconds to do it. Take more than three minutes to do it. And try and explain both sides. And as a member of the cabinet, my job was not only to take our cues from the president and what his agenda was, but to explain it and to explain in detail why these programs exist, why we're spending the money we are, how it's being spent, and why it's a good use of taxpayer dollars. And that's part of our job as uh, either elected or appointed officials. I think
1: one of the things that made that more difficult was the big hoorah about uh, uh, earmarks. (coughs) I I can remember an interchange uh, in in my district uh, where Essentially, it was a 24-hour-a-day parking lot outside of one little town because it needed it needed a new interchange. Uh, I don't. I never heard the word earmark in the 16 years I was in Congress. And for that project, I had to go to, before the Appropriations Committee and explain it. And the first year, I didn't get it. The second year, I brought in the uh, the secondary transportation from the state who laid out very well the, the, the reason the state needed that particular project and we brought a lot of facts and figures to justify it and it passed now that would have a few years later been called an earmark but it, it was it was justified and justifiable and uh, thats Part never made the news, you know. It was again some some odd little thing they picked out somewhere that some idiot congressman stuffed in somewhere along the line (laughs) that they didn't have, uh, and and that that one or two or three examples of earmarks screwed the whole thing. Well, I want to let that be the last word. Bye bye.
2: Bye
3: bye. And joining us for this segment of Background Politics, we are honored to have. the Member of Congress representing Michigan's 12th Congressional District. He is the Chairman Emeritus of the Commerce and Energy Committee. He is the Dean of the House. He is the Honorable uh, John Dingell. Mr. Chairman, thank you for joining
4: us. This is an honor. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you.
3: Well, uh, Mr. Chairman, you know, I've I got to get the 300-pound gorilla out of the room, and I'm not talking about myself. We're talking about, uh, we're sitting in your office today, the day of the vote on a possible government shutdown. Um, it, 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 it almost seems that the economy and the recovery is being held hostage by a possible government shutdown. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Where, where do we go from some place where we're at right now to possibly getting everybody back on track?
4: Well, first of all, we never should have gotten to this place. Second of all, people around here understood how the House should work. We wouldn't be in this mess. And we would have we would have used committee system, and run everything out of the caucus or out of the Speaker's office, and so we wouldn't have had this trouble. We would have had a budget, and we would have run according to the rules that they had back in the days of the founding fathers. Because, as you know, the House here has the rules of the British Parliament. If you look at our, at our rule book, it says Jefferson's manual, which Jefferson wrote from the British Parliament, handed it to the Chamber of uh, Burgesses in Virginia, and then redid it so that he could have, give it to the House of Representatives. It's our, it's our rule books and precedents now. If we'd adhered to that, we wouldn't have this kind of nonsense because they understood how to allow the minority to be heard. A lot of the majority of workers will, but you use the committee system so that it makes the House work. It gathers the facts, it helps the members make the decisions, and it provides for an orderly mechanism for processing all kinds of legislative responsibilities. That includes very specifically the responsibilities of the House of Representatives over budget money, which we have totally disregarded this year and many times previously because of this nonsensical system. When, well,
3: Mr. Chairman, when, when, you know, after 58 years, you've seen many changes. You've seen the dynamics of Congress, particularly the House of Representatives change. I know that in the days when uh, you and uh, Congressman Al Swift were colleagues in the House, there was, a, there was always the ability to compromise. There's always the ability to cross the aisle and make deals and keep government functioning and running efficiently. Now it seems that that's almost a liability. There's no more crossing the aisle, and you're one of the champions of crossing the aisle. You've done that for 58 years. Why have we gotten to that?
4: Partisanship? But interestingly enough, it's not really partisanship. The Republican Party is now in a position where they are at war with each other, and Boehner, the Speaker, has become largely irrelevant. It's really a shame because he's a good man and a decent legislator. So that's a terrible, that's a terrible shame. And the fact of the matter is, until we get an understanding that compromise is not a dirty word, that cooperation is a good word, and that those are the things the farming fathers intended we should do, we're not going to make this place go. Bob Hines? Mr. Chairman, how do we
7: get back to the way it was, the way it worked?
4: Well, what do we need to do differently? Bob, you and Al remember the days when Al and Yes. Both were here and very effective participants on the, on the Hill. And, and all three of you gentlemen remember, remember what was important. There was, a, there was a comedy. There was a respect. There was a respect for each other. There was a respect for the system. We had a bunch of people that that, are, that before they knew where the restrooms were, We're making important speeches telling us how the government should run and and with with no significant knowledge of how the place should work. And this is a calamity for the country. They have no appreciation of the needs of the country. They don't understand the consequences of these shutdowns. And the consequences of the shutdowns are serious. First of all, the country is now in a very fragile condition economically. And and this was not so the last couple times we had a shutdown but we don't have the strength that we had before to come out of this mess unless we begin to work together. So that's one of our major problems. The other thing that we have to do is we have to develop a respect for ourselves and the system and for the country, and to remember that, that, that businesses are holding a businesses not making judgments because they don't have the certainty. They can't go out and invest because they don't know what's going to happen. So money is piling up, jobs are not being created, and business is not producing goods and services, and we're becoming increasingly anti, rather anti-competitive and less and less competitive because we don't understand the duty of this body and its members to work together for the common good.
3: Mr. Chairman, then, is, is it a matter of... One of the great stories that Congressman Al talks about is the uh, the question of: Are you here to get reelected or are you here to govern? It, it seems that in today's class of congressmen, the new school members of Congress are so busy trying to get re-elected and not trying to govern. Is that a problem that you see oh, facing Congress right now? It's a terrible problem.
4: Uh, money is, and the chase for money has become a, a major undertaking in this place. And more importantly, the, the consideration of legislation is done in a way where there's really no consideration. No deep thought goes up to it. Committees have got 50, 50 to 80 members in them, and by the time each member gets his five minutes, the week is gone. <laughs> so we are we're, we're in serious, serious trouble. We have a system that simply has ceased to work. And one of the surprising things is the Senate has now become the legislative body. The House is incapable of legislating. And, and and we have members that, that know nothing whatsoever about the rules. They know none of the legislative history. They know none of the history of the country. And, and, and it appears very strongly that they really don't give a damn about those matters. With the result that the country is being hurt with all the nonsense that goes on here and the refusal to make the system work. Well, it's part of the problem in, in the system, you know, looking
3: back at your career uh, over the 58 years, you seem to have been changing districts every 10 years and it's been moving further west outside of originally Detroit. Is redistricting hampering part of Congress's ability to operate?
4: Yes and no. Uh, I think the kind of bad members that we have here is that disregard their responsibilities would come under a different system of redistricting but the harsh fact of the matter is that redistricting has been however a very serious problem uh, in the south and in other places too districts have all become identical in terms of characters there are absolutely uh everybody in that district is the same it's called packing where you pack the minorities into a few districts go to the south and you'll see full full of solid black districts full of solid white districts and they don't talk together there's no compromise that's why the Senate can work together because they represent a broad base of Americans in the house we don't and the result you see we're incapable of legislating and we're not answerable to anybody when we go home because everybody agrees with us.
7: Bob Lines. Mr. Chairman, um, would the answer uh, to that question, that problem that you've just identified, which I agree with completely, is the solution to that to take redistricting out of the hands of the state legislatures and do what several states have begun to move toward, commissions of senior, like uh, former governors and Supreme Court members who, develop compact and contiguous districts, don't break, up, don't break up communities, and districts don't end up being 65-35, but you get districts, let's say, that are more like 55-45. So a member, run, someone running for office, has got to appeal to more than just his best friends in order to get elected. You
4: see, Bob, you're absolutely right on that. Your old boss and my dear friend, Mike uh, uh, Brown was in here not long back, and we talked about it the very thing that we're talking about. The harsh fact of the matter is, it doesn't make a difference who does it, as long as it's done differently. California, which does some odd things from time to time, uh, has seen fit to set up a new kind of ballot. Everybody says, oh, this is going to make all kinds of changes. Well, it did, but it it never made the changes they thought. And the, the districts are much more representative and one of the problems is that uh, there are probably less than 40 districts in this Congress that, that would move with a significant change in public attitude. And the result is that things go on the same. And in Michigan, we, have, we elect Democratic senators, Democratic governors, and Democratic presidents, and guess what? We elect overwhelmingly Republican Senate and House back home, but we also find that that uh, we elect five out of fourteen members of Congress. Now, this is not an argument for electing Democrats or electing Republicans. It's just simply a, a, a statement that we have become so adroit with computers and all the new technologies. In setting up districts that are are, are one party and that favors a guy uh, a particular political party who runs, that that there is no debate, no discussion, and really an election doesn't have any meaning at all. It's a primary, and one of the evils that that's attended by this is a lot of my Republican colleagues, and there's plenty of decent Republicans around here, primary, uh, are told if they vote for certain things that really are are in the broad overall interest, they're going to have a a primary financed by the Cooks and by other people of vast resources. Of course, the Supreme Court has said that you can spend any damned amount of money now you want on politics, don't have to identify who does it or why or anything else. Throughout most of the campaign reforms that we put in place, so now that this place is is just literally up
1: for sale. Yeah. Mr. Chairman, I'd like to uh, move into into a kind of a historical area a little bit. We can get back to some of these issues in a minute. You've been here 58 years. 57. 57 mm-hmm. years. Well, you'll be here 58.
4: Uh, <laughs> uh, if the Lord says yes. yes.
1: And, and I have a number of questions to ask along that. First of all, who in your judgment was the greatest speaker you served with? Rayburn. 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 I, that doesn't surprise me. And either. right
4: and right behind you John McCormick.
1: John McCormick. Well, we were talking earlier and I said Rayburn and Bob said McCormick. So
4: Well, you're both right. And and, and another 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 great one was Chip O'Neill. Yes. And and, and and but they played by the old rules. The way they were played by in, in the days of Jefferson and the others, so that they understood that the Speaker presides; he doesn't rule, and that the, and that everybody. If, if, Al, you remember when I got to be chairman of this committee? Well, I don't see the parliamentarian, and I asked him. I asked him. I said, "What am I going to do to be a good chairman? Because to be perfectly truthful, I'm scared that." And I said, what do I do about that? He said, well, there's two things. First, you've got to be fair. And second, you've got to be you've got to appear fair. And he said, you've got to give the minority an opportunity to be heard. And you've got to give the majority an opportunity to work their will. And if those things are properly mixed, We'll do, we'll legislate well, because we'll hear from everybody, the right, the left, in between. And if you'll remember, and Bob, you'll remember this, too, when you were on committee staff, you'll recall that we would always hear from everybody, and the legislation came out of the committee would pass overwhelmingly, because we worked together. And there was better legislation because everybody was heard and because everybody participated.
1: Yeah, I, I remember when I first joined the committee uh, and you were first chairman of the committee, Jim Broyer was the ranking Republican on the committee, uh, a nice Southern gentleman from North Carolina. North Carolina. Right? Carolina huh? uh, and uh, the, the two of you had some real tussles on issues on which you disagreed but you also worked well together when that uh, when that fit the, the
4: occasion. Well, more importantly than now, we knew we had to work together in the public interest. And to come to me and complain that people were saying that his first name was Dingle, because there were so many Dingle, Hill bills <laughs> and Dingle were several
2: that were moving
4: through. And Bud Brown, who was Bob's great friend, and my also great friend, came to me one day, and after we had particular nasty series of fights, he was the far right, and I was the far left. Said to me, "You know, Johnny," said my wife is talking about divorcing me and she's going to lay you in as a uh, as 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 a participant in the divorce. She said she's going to call you a correspondent. I said, "Why?" She said, you're spending she, she said, I'm spending so much time with you and so little time with her. <laughs> and, and and what we always did was we always had great friendships across the aisles between our subcommittee chairman, our chairman of subcommittees, and our chairman of full committees and the ranking members. And that was the way it should be. There should be respect and affection. And everybody should understand we've all got rights that have got to be protected here. And those rights are really not our rights as members of Congress. Those are the rights of the people out there that we serve. So I always tell the new members, I say, look, you're the full equal of everybody else around here. You're no better, no worse. And you remember that. You insist on that because that's important for you to be able to serve the people that you represent.
1: Let me ask you one more kind of historical question. Aside from the speakers, uh well, let me put it this way, when I, when I first arrived here in 1978, I, was, I wondered, seriously, I wondered, are, are there any giants left? I remembered uh, Sam Rayburn, I remembered you know, some names like that, but I just didn't know whether there were any giants. Well, I, I found at least two. You were one, uh, and I think by far the, the, the greatest giant. Uh, and the other was probably Ralston Uh people who could get things done and, uh, and, uh, and, and and work across the aisle. But of all of the people you have worked with over your 57 years, uh, who comes to mind as some of the really good members that you worked with?
4: Well, you were one. Bud Brown was one. Uh, Roy Hill, wonderful man. A uh, little guy by the name of Kroos, on of the Republicans. I used to drive drive uh, McCormick and, and Rayburn out of their gourds by making them trouble, but he made him test things out. He became the ranking member on one of my, on a subcommittee I ran. Everybody said, oh, this is going to be terrible. I said, oh, no, it's not going to be terrible. I'm going to have a harder job of convincing him. But if I've convinced him I'm not going to have to worry about anything on the right because he's a fair and a decent man. And I had all kinds of guys like that. Sylvia October was another one. Mm-hmm. And, and and there were all kinds of members and they were always, you know, the guys who get the headlines. The headline grabbers are not necessarily always the best guys around him. And I keep trying to tell people, you know, I I've had a wonderful I'm grateful for it, but I'm just a very ordinary guy who's had an extraordinary job and who played by the rules and who tried to be fair and decent. And I think anybody who comes to this place and tries to do those things will be a success and will be remembered as well. That's why you're
3: remembered as well. Well, Mr. Chairman, in, in along those lines, uh, how influential was your father in you in or shaping the way that you looked at being a member of Congress?
4: Well, he was, of course, a very profound influence in my life. He was a dean of the Michigan delegation. He was a real leader. He was one of the philosophers of the New, Year, of the New Deal. He was one of the authors of Social Security. He was the author of Medicare. He was author of most of the labor legislation in the New Deal, which fixed it so that a working man could belong to a union. Before that it was illegal per se for a guy to belong to a union and to um, bargain over wages, working conditions, and condition money. And before that, it, to to have to to be a member of a union, you had to wear your union button on the back of your lapels or underneath your cap. And, and, and then, then you could. Well, that created the middle class. The unions got us the things that we have today. And they stood for things like education of everybody, health and health care. They were able always the powerful unions to get what they needed for their members, but they understood they had to do more for the people. So the, he, those were things he was very, very proud of. One of the things he was always interested in was conservation and how we I save some of the things that we treasure that make this country such a wonderful place to live. Those were things that he loved and things that meant something to him. I, you, you rarely hear that. And one of the things that I remember about this when I was a young fellow was they would describe the member of Congress two ways. They would say he is sincere. That meant that he was an honest, decent man, that he was trying to serve the people that he represented. And, and and so that man would have great respect in almost anything he did, because they knew that he was sincere. That meant a lot. Then they'd say, he is insincere. And quite frankly, all you gotta do is look around here and see what insincerity is and what it means to the house and to the country by the behavior of some of these clowns that we have in this place. And and the result of that is that that the country is hurt by that. And so, if they said, he seems sincere. That just made him a guy that you were not going to respect and that you were not going to follow and you were not going to work with because he didn't have the interest of the country at heart. Now, that's all gone behind us, and I don't hear that. Now, I used to hear some other words that were important social justice how we see to it that this country is fair and decent how we take care of the least of us and dad used to always be concerned how do we see to it that a guy who has no hope and no help gets a decent way of making it not that you come to the congress with throw goodies around or that you're going to to take care of all these people, that that these are just throwaways on a bunch of welfare queens. We don't do that. And and, and we audit our program, see to it, this kind of rascality doesn't go on. But to just see to it that the least of us had a basically decent existence. And that was viewed as something that was really important. Well, you don't hear that word anymore.
1: And you have... you basically follow those issues that you just named that your father like you've introduced the, the care a health care bill every year, uh, term you've been in Congress, I believe. And I
3: want to follow up on that, Congressman Al. If, if I can, you know, yeah, following in those you also
4: work on your on your salmon after the West too. <laughs> 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 we,
1: we, we, he, he said, I came and I said, "Can you help me with this little thing that was a regional issue?" And he said, "He said yes, I, I will, but it's going to cost you a lot of fish."
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, of
1: was,
6: it, wasn't,
4: it wasn't you. I told that the, the electric utilities came in and said, "We're having trouble getting ourselves licensed on the on the dams because their dams were the dam permits were expiring after 50 years." I said, fellas, you've come to the right place. We're going to help you, but you're going to buy a lot of fish. <laughs> and, and we did. We restored salmon in the west. The mm-hmm. salmon are summer coming back a little bit. In the east, we have all kinds of returns on fishery that we didn't have before. So these things are doable. If somebody understands, we have a broader duty than just our particular concern. And we can look past our own particular concerns, and we can protect values other than what might be our particular values, which is one of the reasons it's so important that we have a lot of differing views represented the question.
1: Well, questions. if you didn't tell me I had to buy a lot of fish, No, I, didn't. I wonder why no. I bought like, so much many fish. <laughs> <laughs> you stole a lot
3: of fish. Yeah, right? oh, there you go. Mr. Chairman is one of the primary authors of the Affordable Care Act, following in your father's legacy of promoting universal health care. It seems that Americans forget that at one time this was a bipartisan issue. I go back to the days when uh, Ted Kennedy, yourself, and President Nixon looked at the uh, possible bipartisan solution back during the Nixon administration. Why have we lost sight of the fact that at one time we all agreed And is it a matter of we just didn't look at it, or has it become too bipartisan since
4: then? Well, the place drifts solicitations for money. There's all kinds of disregard for those kinds of values. But one of the problems you have in this place now is that Nixon could never be elected as a Republican. He's really, quite frankly, is too decent for a lot of these teabaggers. And and, and and Goldwater, same thing. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if Reagan would have the same problems today, too. And so, the, one interesting thing, this health care bill is basically not a Democratic bill. Most people don't realize that the mandate met Romney. Republican candidate for president. He was the guy who pushed it up in, up in Massachusetts. They also forget that the basic idea came from Bob Dole, who was the Republican minority leader or majority leader or minority leader in the Senate. And they don't remember that Chafee from Rhode Island, which mm-hmm. a progressive Republican, came up with the same idea. And that most of those ideas were, have been hanging around the Senate for a long time. And so the Democrats, to get something done, figured, well, this will work better than just more wrangling about single-payer. I still think single-payer is the way to go. But the harsh, unfortunate matter is we have to let this work and solve some of these damnable national problems. And so uh, the bill was really basically a, a Republican bill. Nixon wrote a pretty good health insurance bill. And, and and he ran into other troubles because he had other faults, but his his health insurance bill was not a bad one. And it's surprisingly so that I think almost every president except Hoover and Coolidge, since Teddy Roosevelt started in 1912, pushed a program of national health insurance. Mm-hmm. And Bismarck pushed his it in is- Germany. King Edward VII Seventh in, in. Is, is the Affordable Care Act
3: now, do you see being, is it being held hostage by the fiscal debate and by the debt limit ceiling? Is It It just seems like we can't separate it. Anytime they bring up debt limit, they bring in a, a, the ACA. If you talk about uh, the budget, they bring up the Affordable Care Act. Is well, it being held you, hostage?
4: You, what they're trying to do is to hold this administration hostage for what they want and and usually it's what they want in a particular set of circumstances this is uh healthcare was not the cause for um, quite frankly holding up the administration by the right wing that that changes according to the moment and according to their whim but the but the harsh fact of the matter is when they decide they don't like something they're going to, they're going, to, they're going to try to accomplish two purposes. staff member of mine used to call it selling the whole, same horse twice. Uh, what they do is, is they they say, "Well, you can't do this unless you do that," and <coughs> both of which things are repugnant. And but they appeal to their their uniform, Republican districts. So that goes out, and everybody says, "Well, hallelujah! This is what we're going to do." Uh, frankly, this is baloney. I don't think they'll succeed, but they're really trying. And the polling the thing is, they're holding the whole country hostage to this nonsense about getting the health care bill, which largely now is in place. Uh, it's, they can't they can't deny you insurance because of pre-existing conditions. They can't cancel your policy because of health care. The whole of our patients' bill of rights is now. Is now in law kid sees on his parents policy till he's 26 um, and, and uh, there are all kinds of benefits including reasonable constraints on extortionate billing by insurance companies those are already in place and there are going to be more things including including more expansions of the protection of the citizen against uh, Pre-existing conditions, and 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 there actually are constraints on excessive charges by insurance companies. So a lot of this baloney that you're hearing from people out there who say, "Oh, this is the cost of my insurance is going up," that's malarkey. That's not true. Uh, my wife was on TV with uh, a newsman who said, "Boys, oh, insurance policies going up." I said, "Deb." I wish I had been there because I'd just the skin off on that one. <laughs> well, we, we've got a couple of more minutes uh, here,
3: Mr. Chairman, in this segment. Uh, uh, one question I have. You brought up your, your, your wife, Sammy. Has she been part of the energy that's kept you motivated in staying in Congress and continuing to serve the people of uh, Michigan's 12th district? Well,
4: if, if you ever get really exposed to Deborah, you'll see just pure energy at work. Yeah, she's a fabulous woman. She's the best friend, the best partner, best best thing ever happened. She's and she's a wall of fire.
3: Yes, she is. Yes, she is. One last question, real quick, Mr. Chairman, and and we've got to finish this segment. Um, when we look back a hundred years from now, what do you expect the history books will write about Chairman John Dingell?
4: They will have carefully forgotten. <laughs> I uh, and, doubt that. And, and and it really doesn't matter. They're, they're already now. Talking about if there was a poll taken in England about Winston Churchill, the tremendous number of people thought he was a rock star. So one of the one of the great giants of the 20th century is viewed as a rock star. I have never did anything that's going to match even in a small way what that man did. So I I I want to look back when I put my feet up for the last time and say, well, this is it, and and just say you know I did what